Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, uh, as we come to this very familiar text today, this uh, big, important, uh, world-changing text, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are uh, faithful to do that which you would call us to do. Uh, have your way with us, Lord. Christ's name we pray. Amen. In seminary, I had lots of assignments that I'm convinced the professors did uh, just to teach us how to think at a higher critical level, uh, not to pass on information, not to help us answer the test, but to teach us how to think for ourselves. Uh, these are the assignments that you remember laboring over, but you don't actually remember what they were. Uh, you just know they somehow formed you. But there was occasionally these assignments where you know they had something in mind that they wanted you to do, and you, you tried your best to do it. Um, in my, my Old Testament class, I knew the professor had a plan for us. Uh, write a consolidated Old Testament. Find the hundred most important Old Testament chapters, write them down, and turn them in. That's the entire prompt. I labored over this thing. I... Uh, put my chapters down, I erased chapters, I put them back in, I turned it in, and I got a B. I was incredibly disappointed to get a B on this assignment, not to get a B in general, because by then seminary had broken me enough that I realized I wasn't getting all A's in this place. Uh, that was my first semester in New Testament intro. Uh, he, he made it clear that grade inflation was the thing that he wasn't gonna stand for. Um, but I got a B on this thing that's seemingly very subjective, that uh, 100 most important chapters to you, turn them in, defend them, how can you not get an A. And the, the teaching instructor, uh, I kind of went to him and said, what's going on? You didn't include Jeremiah 31. I've got a list of chapters in my mind that you have to include in your 100 or else you don't have the right ones. Genesis 1, uh, kind of the big picture of creation. Got to have that in there. Genesis 2, this intimate portion, uh, uh, portrait of God and humanity. Got to have that in there. Genesis 3, in the fall, what happens when uh, humanity gives in to temptation. Genesis 15, in God's covenant with Abraham. Exodus 6, Exodus 20. 2 Samuel 7, in God's covenant with David. Psalm 23. And Jeremiah 31. I had the rest of them. The other ones made total sense. Jeremiah 31... I'm not sure I had ever read it, even though I know I had read it. It did not stick out to me at all. And he told me, this is maybe the most important one, because it's where everything changes. All these other ones have built us to this point. Covenant has been throughout these other important chapters, and God says, I'm going to do a new covenant. Jesus is going to come and say, this is my blood of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews is going to say that Jesus has, has finalized the new covenant. Yeah, you have to have Jeremiah 31 in here or you don't have a consolidated Old Testament. Still debate about his grading strategy, or at least his prompt, but I've come to appreciate his point. Alan, wherever you are teaching, you are right. Jeremiah 31 changes everything. 
And it changes everything no matter what point you read the story. If you're the people of Israel, when this is written, Jeremiah 31 should wreck you. At this point in your life, you're, you're hearing the story of generations who've been watching incoming forces. You've watched the north fall to Assyria. You've hung on for another hundred years. You've heard your grandparents talk about when the north fell. You've listened to their horror stories. You've watched the battles happen around you and ultimately you've watched Babylon come and take over your kingdom and bring you into exile. You've heard over and over again the God say, if you turn back to me, I'll sustain you. But if you don't, this is gonna happen. And over and over again, you've watched people fail. And now here you are in Babylon You've heard the word from Yahweh, settle in. It's gonna be 70 years at least in this place. Have kids, build homes, plant gardens, because it's gonna be a while. And then you hear these words. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant seeds in Israel and Judah and people and animals will spring up. Just as I watch over them to dig up and to pull down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. That's got to be about the most hopeful thing you've ever heard at that point. Even just the person of Jeremiah, uh, way back in his calling, God said, I'm going to appoint you to tear down and to build up. And to this point, there hasn't been much building up. It's been tearing down. It's been undoing the things of the past. And now God says, I'm going to build and plant in the people of Judah. Sour grapes eaten by parents leave a bitter taste in the mouth of their children uh, because everyone will die for their own sins. Whoever eats sour grapes will have a bitter taste in their own mouths. What an uh, obtuse metaphor uh, that they write, but it makes perfect sense to them. What he could have said is, no more are you going to bear the weight of your parents' sins. You're going to bear the weight of your own. This idea that generation after generation are going to suffer because of each other. You stand on your own now. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them, out of the, took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Israel's story has been a story of covenant from the beginning. Part of the consolidated Old Testament is including all those covenants because it's the only way it all holds together that God made covenant with humanity and said, even if you're unfaithful, I'll be faithful. And now God says, I'm gonna do a new covenant. I'm shaking the whole thing up. Look forward to what I'm gonna do. And oh, by the way, I forgive your wrongdoing and will never remember your sins. 
for a people whose pretty much entire life experience has been God saying, stop, repent, turn, and things will be okay, to hear things are okay. I'm going to do it again. I am going to make the new covenant. It's got to feel free. Think about how I parent my children. On a good day, I parent and I pay attention to what's going on, and if something wrong happens, I respond accordingly, but my general posture is, these kids are great. I find on my worser days that at every point I'm like, he dropped a cracker on the floor, he did this, he did this, he did this, and I can see on my kids' faces the days I am overbearing, the days that the weight of my kind of criticism and judgment. I think about the people of Israel and just the weight of all those years of God very rightly saying, you've made mistake after mistake, and then to this day coming and going, I forgive your sins, and I forget about them. They've watched God be faithful when God said he'd be faithful. They've watched God enact judgment when God said he would enact judgment. And so they have to have hope when God says, I'm gonna do something new. I'm going to plant, I'm going to build up, I'm going to write it on your heart instead of on these dusty stones. I'm going to forgive your sins. People all around will know me. It's got to be a hopeful moment. But it's also got to be a moment that they ask when. You've already told us we're going to be here 70 years. You've got to imagine that families sit around and begin to wait for this. When is he going to do it? When is this new thing going to happen? They go out to the fires and tell Israel's story. Uh, they tell the story of Abraham. They tell the story of Isaac and Jacob. And they say, and through Jeremiah, God said he's going to do something new. Can you wait? It's going to be incredible. And so they anticipate and they anticipate. And eventually under Persia, they're allowed to enter back into the land. And immediately the people know that this isn't what God was talking about. It's good to be back. But it's disappointing. The temple's not the same. We're still being oppressed. When is God going to do what God said he was going to do? And then you flip the page. It's the end of the Old Testament. Israel's story goes on for about 400 more years before we hear from God again. 400 years of generation after generation going, God said he was going to do a new thing. I believe it's coming. It's going to happen. What is it going to look like? Is it going to look like David? Is it going to be a mighty warrior who comes in and takes out these empires? Is it going to be somebody like Samuel who comes on the scene so clearly with a word from God? Is it going to be somebody like Jeremiah calling out? Will it be Elijah? What is it going to be like? We know from the times, from the stories of the day, that person after person appears and says, I'm God's anointed one. I've come to help do this new thing. And then Jesus of Nazareth is born. Nothing about his story suggests he is the new thing. To anybody who's watching in Israel, the son of workers from up in Nazareth and Galilee. A rabbi school dropout by many accounts. He's not a fighter. 
He's not from any kind of royal lineage. He is. But, but he does the unbelievable. He in himself does God's new thing. In the fullness of his life, death, and resurrection, he says this is what the new thing looks like. On the night before he gives himself up, he invites his disciples into the upper room. They uh, share a meal, and then at the end, uh, he takes the cup. Uh, he lifts it up and says something in effect of, Blessed are you, O God and King, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Thank you. He takes the cup and he uh, gives it to those around him. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. These people who've journeyed with Jesus and have kind of missed the story over time have to have their breath taken away in this moment. See, they know the story that God is doing something new, that God is doing a new covenant that's going to be written on their hearts. They've seen glimmers and pieces, and then in this moment, it becomes crystal clear that the new thing is Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being in that room and connecting the dots that day, that 500-some years later, it's happening in your presence? looks nothing like anything your grandparents told you was coming. And it's here, and it's now, and it's remarkable. And then Jesus goes and dies. And they begin to doubt for a moment. But he's raised from the power of the dead, and the world never looks back. Jesus appears to the women. He appears to the disciples. And it's clear from then on that God's new thing has changed the course of history forever. Christianity spreads out from the ancient Near East rapidly. It reaches the ends of the the entire known world within 300 years. The original apostles are planting churches. There have uh, churches being come up kind of second generation after them who tell the Jesus story, who tell what it actually means to be people who can look back now at God answering, at God being faithful to God's promises. You know, the... We call it the book of Hebrews. It's probably better called the sermon to the Hebrews. It's this letter written to the kind of a second generation Jewish Christian church. People who know God's story, who know Israel's story, and who are tending to fall back onto, we need to do the Jewish things. This second generation apostle, this, this disciple of God, decides to write the sermon to end all sermons. Somewhere around 45 minutes, I'm going to give it all I have, every bit, to show that Jesus is better than Moses and better than Joshua and better than the sacrifices and better than the high priests because in himself he is all that. Imagine that you're a church sitting and listening to this person speak, hearing these words in Greek, Hearing what it means to be a people of the new covenant. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We have a kind of high priest. 
He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is serving as the priest of the holy place, which is the true meeting tent of God, not any human being set up. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary for this high priest to have also something to offer. If he was located on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because there would already be others who offer gifts based on the law. They serve in a place that is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly meeting tent. This is indicated when Moses was warned by God when he was about to set up the meeting tent. See that you follow the pattern that I showed you on the mountain in every detail. But now, Jesus has received a superior priestly service just as he arranged, arranged a better covenant that is enacted with better promises. If the first covenant had been without fault, it wouldn't have made sense to expect a second. But God did find fault with them since he says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, from which I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I have made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue to keep my covenant. And I lost interest in them, says the Lord. This covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will place my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will never teach a neighbor or their brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least important of them to the most important, because I will be lenient towards their unjust actions, and I won't remember their sins anymore. When it says new, this makes the first obsolete. And if something is old and outdated, it's close to disappearing. So when the first covenant had regulations for the priest's service and the holy place on earth, they pitched the first tent and called it the holy place. It contained a lampstand, a table, and the loaves of bread presented to God. There was a tent behind the second curtain called the Holy of Holies. It had a gold altar for incense and a chest containing the covenant that was covered with gold on all sides. In the chest, there was a gold jar containing manna, rods, Aaron's rod that budded, and stone tablets of the covenant. Above the chest, there were magnificent winged creatures casting their shadow over the seat of the chest where sin is taken care of. Right now, we can't talk about all these things in detail. When these things have been prepared in this way, priests enter from the first of all times as they perform their service. But then the only high priest enters the second tent once a year. He never does this without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people committed in ignorance. With this, the Holy Spirit is showing that the way into the holy place has not been revealed yet while the first tent was standing. This is a symbol for the present time. It shows that the gifts and sacrifices that are being offered can't perfect the conscience of those who it is serving. They are superficial regulations that are only about food, drink, and various ritual ways to wash with water. They are regulations that have been imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as the high priest of good things that have happened. He passed through the greater and more perfect meeting tent, which isn't made by human hands, that is, not of this world. He entered in the Holy of Holies once 
and for all by his own blood, not by the blood of goats or calves, securing our deliverance for all time. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkled ashes of cows made spiritually contaminated people holy and clean, how much more would the blood of Jesus wash our consciences clean from the dead works in order to serve the living God? He offered himself to God through eternal spirit as a sacrifice without any flaw. That is why he is the mediator of a new covenant, which was a will, so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance on the basis of his death. His death occurred to set them free from the offenses committed under the first covenant. When there is a will, you need to confirm the death of the one who made the will. This is because a will will only take effect after a death, since it's not in force while the one who made the will is still alive. So not even the first covenant was put into effect without blood. Moses took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the law scroll itself and all of the people after he had proclaimed every commandment of the law, of the law to all the people. While he did it, he said, This is the blood of the covenant that God has established for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the meeting tent and also all the equipment that would be used in the priest's sacrifice with blood. Almost everything is cleansed by blood according to the law's regulations, and there is no forgiveness without blood being shed. So it is necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be cleansed with these, these sacrifices, but the heavenly things had to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. Christ didn't enter the holy place, which is a copy of the true holy place by, made by human hands, but into heaven itself so that he now appears in God's presence for us. He didn't appear to offer himself over and over again, just like the high priest enters the earthly holy place every year with blood that isn't his. If it were so, then Jesus would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. Instead, he has now appeared once at the end of the ages to get rid of sin by sacrificing himself. People are destined to die once and then face judgment. In the same way, Christ also offered once to take himself upon the sins of many people. He will appear a second time not to take away sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the real things themselves. It can never be perfect. The ones who are trying to draw near to God through those sacrifices that are continually offered every year. Otherwise, why wouldn't they have stopped being offered? If the people carrying out their religious duties had been completely cleansed once, no one would ever be aware of sin anymore. Instead, these sacrifices are a reminder of sin every year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, he comes into the world and he says, You didn't want a sacrifice or an offering, but you prepared a body for me. You weren't pleased with entirely burned offerings or a sin offering. So then I said, look, I've come to do your will, God. This has been written about me in the scroll. He says above, you didn't want and you weren't pleased with a sacrifice or an offering or an entirely burned offering or a purification offering, which are offered because the law requires them. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. 
He puts an end to the first to establish the second. We have been made holy by God's will through the offering of Jesus Christ's body once and for all. Every priest stands every day, serving and offering the same sacrifices over and over. Sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when this priest offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right side of God. Since then, he's been waiting for his enemies that are made into a footstool for his feet. Because he perfected the people who are being made holy with one offering for all time. The Holy Spirit affirms this when saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, says the Lord, I will place my laws in their hearts, I will write them on their minds, and I won't remember their sins and their lawlessness behavior anymore. When there is forgiveness for these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. The longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament draws from Jeremiah 31, and this preacher hammers home. This new covenant has changed everything because this new covenant is enfleshed in Christ. One sacrifice for all, one sacrifice for all time, and he has forgiven and forgotten your sins. And so then the preacher spends the next four chapters saying, so be his people, be free to be part of the new thing he is doing. Be a new covenant people. Be holy and live in love. Friends, I imagine there are people in this room today who are at each kind of point of hearing this. People who feel like you're still in exile. Like you're sitting in Babylon going, I know you're faithful, God. But when can I experience this new thing? I imagine there are people who feel like you're in the upper room, like you've been journeying with Jesus, but you don't quite get it. It's not quite all sinking together. You know, you know you've met the person, but how does it end? And there's probably plenty of us in this room who need to hear the logic that Christ died for you once for all, your sins are forgiven. They are washed away. You don't need to do anything to fix it. Turn to him. Look to the one who embodies the new covenant. Believe that he can do a new thing. Friends, God wants to plant and build up and he wants to do it through the people in this room. He's not waiting. He has done his new thing. He has poured out his spirit on his church and he has given us the chance to go and be his people who are bringing heaven to earth. We're gonna sing our closing hymn and I believe that uh, many of us need to say, God, I'm here. Show me the new thing you want to do in my life. Show me how you want to build up. I think there are people in this room who need to say, God, I feel like I'm in exile. Please show me that you've already showed up. And so there's gonna be a number of us at this altar as we sing our closing hymn. 
If you want to come and pray at any point in your life, you're welcome to come and pray. And if no one comes to this altar, we're going to be standing here to meet you. Because God has done, is doing, and will do a new thing. The new covenant is written on our hearts. God desires that you know him and he has forgiven your sins. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, we all come from uh, different points of life, different uh, weeks, different months, different states of our souls, but we all come to you, the one who took on flesh in Christ and the one who in a once and for all sacrifice shed the blood of the new covenant that we remember week after week, who in Pentecost poured out your spirit and enabled us to be people who know that your law is written on our heart. Meet us here and show us clearly the new thing that you wish to do in us. Send us out in the fullness of your spirit to help bring your kingdom to earth and to bear witness to your goodness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.